our actual name should have been the Scam Alert Podcast, but uh, we felt Crypto Basic was a little more catchy. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. I am your host, Adam Levy, and here's my co-host, Kareem Baruke. What's up, Kareem? How's it going, Adam? Hey, uh, yeah, and we, I'm, I'm good, but sadly, we, uh, Brent Philbin will not be making it. He's got his uh, infamous nose tampon situation. No, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't a nose tampon situation. He, he has the sniffles. The sniffles. Uh, oh, he's got the sniffles. the sniffles. So he was making yeah. fun of you the other day for not wanting to come on, and now uh, he had the sniffles. But that's okay. Yeah. We're going to continue on without him. We have to, we have to batter on through without the Pillsbury. Yes, one of these weeks we'll actually have uh, everyone on uh, the, <laughs> the, the the great trio, uh, the three amigos. And as usual, I actually don't think we had anything released this week it's been kind of a hectic week for everyone and uh but we plan to get on that soon enough and uh, we hope that brent makes a speedy recovery from his sniffles i feel like you can't say sniffles without saying it like that yeah and without imagining brent crying and saying i can't go on because of my sniffles that's my yeah. brent imitating somebody I'm, voice, I'm, by the way <laughs> i'm turmeric man yeah, i'm turmeric man so with out Brent, however, we know that you're going to be the one tackling our rapid fire section. Just to remind the audience, by the way, our rapid fire section is where we kick off the flagship with a series of headlines that we're not going to dive super deep into, but we thought you should hear. So Adam, this is going to be you. Rapid fire is your baby. We don't have Brent slowing us down. So let's tackle it on. All right. Well, the first quick little article is Netflix has an upcoming series on crypto, uh, but it's actually going to be on altcoins instead of specifically uh, Bitcoin. Actually, sorry. I'm not keen on if it's a series or a documentary. Um, There isn't that much news out there, but I will. But one thing that did come up was that they're planning on having Vitalik, your boy, Charles. uh, Yeah. Yeah. The Hong Fei from Neo. Um, they might even be having some one of the guys from V Chain. I mean, they're probably going to be capturing a lot of different um, approaches, right? I would assume approaches. Yeah, even my boy. I, I hate to say my boy, uh, <laughs> Justin Sun. Yeah, he, I, they, they might be interviewing him. But that'll just be fun. No, kind no of, absolutely. Kind Look, of he's watch. he's a part of the space, right? Like you, yeah. you have to include it if you want to do a documentary about Wall Street or whatever. You gotta include the. All the aspects of it, because it's part of the culture. And I think, you know, we do, we have seen a lot of docuseries recently, right? Like, I feel like that's more of a modern phenomenon. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but you're like, sometimes it is just a documentary, like a long movie. But I feel like I've seen more and more of these docuseries where, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a seven episode thing doing a 20 minute episodes and they get to explore a bunch of different concepts without tying it all together into one single like narrative, you know, so they might be able to say, oh, platforms or, oh, this and this. So like, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of different types of blockchains out there. There's some that are platforms, some that are just store of value. And, and you know, it, it's hard. Just saying altcoin is a very, is a very broad statement, you know. Yeah. Bitcoin was very specifically one thing about, you know, the history and where it started. But so this then, is, 
Before you go on, Adam, I just wanted to say I, this is cool. I didn't, I didn't know this. I'm glad you put this in the rapid fire. I do think that Netflix has a particular tap into popular culture, and I do think that this is interesting because it shows how much deeper we're getting into the mainstreamization of cryptocurrency. Right? Like I remember getting super excited when the mainstream Bitcoin documentary was coming out. Uh, just the fact that people were going to get a chance to see a nicely edited, professionally done history of Bitcoin was exciting. And now we're diving into all of the other cryptocurrencies, which, you know, that's that's cool. I'm excited. Yeah. And uh, so to piggyback on, uh, you know, the word crypto, Electronic Arts EA tweeted out the other day, September 19th. I think that was. Yeah. So that was Thursday. They tweeted out. I don't even know what day it is. Yeah, it was Thursday. Uh, so they tweeted out, invest in crypto. That's all it said. And it got 23 likes, 8.3K retweets, including me. Uh, I had to retweet that. And the thing is, is that apparently there is a new character in their game called Apex Legends, which is kind of like a battle royale kind of fortnite game okay and it actually had a lot of hype very early on i actually lost a prop bet to a few poker players because i thought that apex was going to be the fortnite killer but ultimately i thought that there was that that's a that's a different i thought that i got my money in good but we kind of got uh we had some i might have been a little premature on it but (laughs) or i should have made the parameters longer and not like, because there needs to be more time for Apex to build their environment. I'm getting off track, though. But <laughs> it says invest in crypto with a capital C. And that's basically because they have a new character that is being released for season three of Apex Legends. And it's kind of amazing because people are like, it's just such a, it's kind of a cryptic tweet. Then obviously they're getting all just annihilated in the in the mentions with <laughs> you know Justin Sun's in there. Check out games built on hashtag Tron. <laughs> and then you know there's all the, like Binance is like given g- hopping in there, and it's right. just kind of I mean, how can they not? Right? It's a feeding frenzy. Like uh, basically, EA comes out as this juicy gazelle of the mainstream and says the word crypto. How are all the crypto hyenas not going to come take a bite? Of course, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's just it's just a good way to create some buzz, especially for season three of that game. Uh, how, I do think it you- is better than Fortnite. You should try it. <laughs> All right. That's it. Adams thinks he should have won that bet. I guess his referees are still having the decision under review. We do have to mention, Adam, though. I mean, crypto news is good news. We're pro crypto. I have to let the audience know, for everybody that doesn't know, some fun facts about EA. Did you know that the most, the world record for the most downvoted Reddit comment in history belongs to Electronic Arts? Yeah, apparently they make good games, but then apparently they don't ever listen to anything the community ever says ever. So, and they and people feel like they're just kind of it's not it's even, it's even worse than that. EA realized that microtransactions were a thing, right? So, like they are the ones that take it to the extreme level, whereas like now the gaming industry is plagued because that's kind of like uh, the old man complaint about the gaming industry, right? The deterioration of it. Games have gotten way better, no question about it. But one of the things that sucks about gaming in this new world is that once developers realize that you can keep charging people 
for existing in the game, they they stopped working as much on like, okay, we're going to create this complete product, give it to you for $50, $60, which is a big investment. And that's it. You take it home and you you have the whole thing. Right now, they realize, oh, wait a minute, uh, this horse that runs faster, or this sword that cuts faster, or this armor that has max defense, if we charge 99 cents for it, then you could just keep getting money out the wazoo. EA took that to the extreme and just started like locking in main characters. There was a Star Wars game where you either had to play a bajillion hours to get Darth Vader or pay $5, right? So it started commodifying everything in the game. And um, when they were attacked for it, they said something along the lines of like, oh, we think that it's about, you know, the gamers want to the rewarding blah, 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 aka. And then the gaming community really started hating EA. That doesn't mean they stopped buying their games. So obligatory uh, EA is like the Wells Fargo of gaming comment. <laughs> there you go. And I do know for the most upvoted, I think it was that magic, that guy that went around. For at least, it may, oh, might not yeah. be accurate anymore, anymore, but I know that for a period of time that there was a guy who went to magic tournaments and he just kind of, he posed next to dudes with their butt cracks because <laughs> there were so many of them. And it was such like a, it, it was kind of like, you know, I get he got banned from magic for it. And I kind of get that because he can't really be doing that. But also when you put it on the internet and show that people and their need to improve with their hygiene and showing less butt crack, like I kind of respect that. That that thread was legendary. It was, if I remember correctly, it was the all time top thread until Reddit redid the algorithm so that it didn't start taking away, like weighing it down as quickly. And now well, it was an Obama post, and then uh, now the top-rated all-time post is a GIF, a funny GIF about Guardians of the Galaxy. So there you go. That shows you the internet. <laughs> there you go. So as per usual, the not-so-rapid rapid fire is uh, moving on. Okay, to uh, real the- quick, I just want the audience to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to slow it down even more. The reason the rapid fire is taking so long is we are using all the extra Brent time and just packing it in here into the rapid fire. We're allowed to do that. It's an executive decision. We planned it this way. Now you can continue, Adam. There you go. So the next one is uh, Ethereum. They recently revealed their launch date for testing Istanbul. And apparently Istanbul is the name of their next update. Or like their next, uh, it says like in the article, Istanbul is Ethereum's long debated hard fork. So do you know anything about that? Because like, seems weird to me that Ethereum's hard forking. Long debated hard. I mean, it might just be talking about an upgrade. To be honest with you, no, I haven't stayed on track of all the Ethereum developments. But I know that like, if they ever, for example, want to go to proof of stake, which I believe was Casper, I mean, all, all of their developments include a hard fork right it might not be a split i don't i don't really know yeah so the plan is the first update will take place uh in the next few months and then the second part of it will be 2020 and the second update will include the progressive proof of work algorithm which is supposed to remove mining advantages given to miners and i guess it's been pushed back a lot and definitely talked about uh it got pushed back because of a uh an audit that was done by an independent group that wasn't done yet and it's supposed to be rolled out and i feel like i've heard i've seen that pop up here and there on twitter 
like some for it, some against it. I'm not really sure about progressive POW. Don't know enough to comment yet, but I'm sure we'll do some explorations that yeah. will give us some better ideas. But I hope that, uh, you know, I'm just a big fan of Ethereum and I hope that things don't get delayed and things get rolled out when they say it's going to get rolled out. The next one is uh, JP Morgan's blockchain-based network grows to over 330 banks. And that's pretty cool. It's called the Inner Bank Information Network. Uh, Deutsche Bank is one of the, the big guys in there, which is, I mean, that's a big bank. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and apparently they, they laid off like a lot of people recently, but still, they're still generating. I mean, it's kind of like if Google goes through like 20% layoffs or something, they still have like the, a massive workforce, you know? Sometimes you got to clean house, I assume, in a business. Uh, yeah, well, especially when you're getting closer to economic downturns or... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, who knows? And they're using uh, something called Quorum, which is a permissioned version of the Ethereum blockchain. And I guess that's just good for you know the space, good for Ethereum. And yeah, I mean, it's just great that JP Morgan has that many banks on board. I feel like been a very quick turnaround for a business where what two years ago they were speaking out against crypto <laughs> yeah well we know that a lot of times that's for sure yes and then the last one is uh ethereum i guess this is the ethereum rapid fire uh but they recently celebrated more than 75 million unique addresses and that's pretty sick I'm not sure what the stat of Bitcoin is regarding that. But uh, when you look at, there's a graph that I'm going to post in the show notes. But it basically is in 2017, it was roughly two, somewhere between two and three million based on the graph in like July 2017. And since the first quarter of 2018, it's been a steady rise. It legitimately just looks like a 45 degree angle up. So it's not super fast, but also like that's pretty crazy because that that means that 2.5 million, we'll say, in July 2017. That's yeah. that's pretty fast. It is it is pretty fast growth. You know, the only thing I will say as a caveat is that like let's say unlike traditional banking accounts, which involve all of this process and sometimes even minimal fees or something, the nature of blockchain and how a lot of blockchain gets used. It makes me not want to draw too much emphasis on just the number of wallet addresses because you can create so many in, in, in a process, right? Like, let's say, for example, me as a single Ethereum holder in my couple of years in the cryptocurrency space, I've had to create multiple Ethereum wallets, whether it's through exchanges or web wallets or a hard fork or I mean, who knows how many are created. That's not even to mention dApps and smart contracts that might automatically create something that's neutral and it's just a pass through or I don't even know, you know, like it is relevant because clearly it gets created because of somebody participating in the network. But wallet creation in and of itself is not as um, revelatory of what's really happening in the network. You know what I mean? That's definitely a good point. But also, it's worth clearly noting. like not... Yeah, it is yeah, worth yeah. noting. <laughs> but also, like, you know, it's not... like If, let's say, there are 2 million addresses in 2017, maybe that was like 500k people or something mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unique users. And so it's like, it's still like, whether it might not... It's not 75 million people, 
it's still definitely, you know, a lot more than it was two yep. years ago. Yeah. Also, I looked up Bitcoin and apparently they have 460 million unique addresses. <laughs> so still a ways to go. Yeah, Bitcoin's the big daddy. Yeah, big boy. Big daddy Bitcoin. Yep. So that's it for the rapid fire. And uh, now you want to uh, hear a little bit about our great sponsor, Wild Foods. You should definitely check them out. They have great different kinds of coffee. I had the cocoa butter. I had the matcha and the nootropics. Uh, I forget. I think it's Cocoa Tropics. Those all sound amazing. And Brent has held them back from me. So I have not been able to try those. I did, however, get to sample some of their Lion's main extract, which was... I mean, I think you should yell at Brent at some point for that. I'll yell at Brent. Yelling is not very effective with Brent. He he can yell louder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Adam, I have a story about the Federal Reserve... You know, I, I like to dive deep into these economic things. And I, I should note, this was actually brought to our attention by somebody in the chart who brought it up first. I want to say uh, Kryptoni86. Give you a little shout out. Was that the first one? Or it might have been the Blackburn. Anyway, so here's the situation. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the overnight borrowing rate shot up. And it cost the Federal Reserve to essentially inject a bunch of money into the money supply. So when I was reading this article, one of the first things that I wanted to understand, because I realized that I don't understand it at a deep level, is, okay, well, what is the overnight borrowing rate? Like, what does that really mean, right? So Mm -hmm. the explanation that I found on Investopedia is that you have all of these major banks, right? And because of their individual business activity their cash balance at the end of the day is going to fluctuate a lot, right? You might have a big withdrawal, a big transfer, deposits, all this stuff. So your actual cash on hand is fluctuating, but there are federal limits, federal reserve limits, like how much money you have to have on hand, right? So overnight rates basically is the process through which banks lend to other banks. The banks that have cash surpluses can lend to the banks that have cash deficits overnight at a particular rate so that they can meet their minimum cash on hand uh, required, so to speak. The Federal Reserve or the central bank of the country, the Federal Reserve for us, uh, is a part of that market. And they actually participate in the market sometimes in order to keep the interest rates from going too high or too low, right? And they can actually sometimes target rates. Like we want to keep the rates at 2%, 2.5%, uh, et cetera. So why do we want to keep interest rates low? Like, I know this is kind of like a simpleton question, but I kind of just want, is it just because that, that, that creates inflation if it gets too high? Yeah. So the idea is that reducing the interest rate will stimulate economic growth. But if you, because it'll incentivize people to spend money, right? So like, let's say, for example, in, instead of having to pay a 10% for every dollar that you borrow, you are paying 1%. So you're just getting a huge discount. So if you're, for example, a business person, you could say, wow, I could definitely, like if I had an extra half a million dollars, I could definitely make an investment that's going to get me more than 1%. So if I only have to pay 1% for borrowing that 500K, then now I'll borrow it and I'll invest it. And and you as a homeowner might say, oh, I'm going to go refinance my mortgage. And Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So people borrow more and spend more, and the idea is that that'll stimulate the economy. So 
when, in theory, the Federal Reserve will see economic slowdown, that there's a slowdown in activity, they will lower the rates to incentivize people to borrow, to incentivize economic activity. Of course, the risk of that is if you go too much, there's too much borrowing, there's too much leveraging, then it becomes like a systemic risk. Like the big short. Exactly. Exactly. Now, again, I don't understand all of the intricacies of the system or anything like that. So this is my best attempt to make sense out of it, right? But the part that is important to notice is that the spike was significant. So here's just to give you a reference point, the target rate for July. So we talked about how the Federal Reserve basically wants to keep these inflation rates. Because here's another important point. This overnight rate determines the basis through which banks are going to lend to the consumer. Because if, let's say, Bank of America at the end of the day needs to borrow money either from the Federal Reserve or from Merrill Lynch or from whatever, if they have to pay 2% for that money, then they're not going to lend you money at less than 2%. And by extension, if it goes up, then their loans on mortgages or businesses or banks All of that goes up to account for their cost of borrowing money, right? So that's how it affects the larger system uh, slowly over time. So the Federal Reserve tries to target this rate. And and in this case, they wanted July to be between 2% and 2.5%. And on Monday, that rate spiked all the way up to 5%, right? Wow. And then it kept surging on Tuesday until its highest point it was almost at 10% interest rate. So the Federal Reserve was essentially forced to step in and they started what was called an overnight repo operation, which is essentially them going in and injecting money into the system. Because again, this means that there's a lack of liquidity, right? Because the banks are sitting around saying essentially, okay, I have a shortage of cash, so I need to borrow some cash. And they go to one bank, And hey, let me do the overnight at 2%. And of course, you can't because you're also short or you're short enough or enough people are short that you can charge more. So everybody's asking for more and more money. The bottom line is that there's not enough money. That's why they're bidding up the cost of money by paying more and more interest rate. So the Federal Reserve is coming in and saying, okay, this is getting out of hand. We need to inject some money into the system to keep the interest rate closer to the inflation rate. So on Tuesday, to, to to the interest rate, sorry. So on Tuesday... They started the first process, which was by it was $53 billion that they put into the system to lower the interest rate. And it did erase a little bit of stress, but they had to come in again on Tuesday, I mean, on Wednesday, and add another $75 billion because the rates hadn't stabilized, right? Huh. So in total, between Tuesday and Wednesday, the Federal Reserve printed, injected $128 billion into the system. This is not unheard of, but we hadn't really done it since like 2008 that, or a decade ago. That was basically the last time that that they really had to go into the printing machine. So one of the interesting questions that people are asking is, why did this happen? Why did we have this sudden spike in interest rates, which we can also consider a sudden drought of liquidity? So one of the theories is, well... A bunch of U.S. companies recently had to take out a bunch of cash to make payments to the U.S. Treasury for their quarterly tax payments, right? If you pay your taxes quarterly, you have your money in the bank. A bunch of companies just went to the bank and said, hey, I need all this money to to pay the government my taxes. So that's one of the things that could have been a catalyst. At least uh, Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, kind of endorsed this theory a little bit. And then some of the more critical theories are saying, like, I don't want to say more critical, but let's say more 
big picture is that now we're in a situation where the deficit has increased, right? Because Trump and the Republican Party uh, passed tax cuts recently, as everybody knows. So our tax revenue went down. The federal government's revenue went down because we are taking in less taxes. But they also increased the budgets. They're doing more military spending. There wasn't a budget cut, which means that revenues went down, expenses went up. So the amount of money that the government has to borrow uh, on a regular basis to just keep operating increased. There's more demand for cash. So some of the perspective is that this liquidity shortage also came from the government itself is also basically borrowing more and more and more money. So there's more demand for money and that increases the rates. So the wow. conclusion, yeah. <laughs> so the conclusion here is not necessarily like, aha, this is it. The system's about to blow up, but it could certainly be an indicator. I mean, it just shows you how our system needs these uh, kind of random interventions just to function. Because if that had been, if that had been, let's say, a, a real free market, there's a good chance those interest rates would have just kept climbing up. <laughs> because there's not a hundred and twenty-eight billion dollar buyer that would have came into the system to stabilize the rates, were it not for the Federal Reserve. That's not healthy. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, right? Um, no. <clears throat> so what you're saying is that if they had not given some of the money from the Federal Reserve, they that we would be facing interest rates that were just too high to buy anything, which would cause well, everyone to stop buying, and then that would maybe... It would have been a domino, that's for sure. It would have been a domino that would have affected the entire economy as those banks externalized the cost of those increased interest rates. And it's important to note here because this is really fundamental to the Bitcoin hypothesis, right? There the, it is. <laughs> what What's really important here is it's not even that money that's being taken out of the Federal Reserve, right? Because the Federal Reserve doesn't have a true balance sheet. Everybody else in the world, when you write a check, it's being taken out of your account. If Adam wants to give me $100, he it's from his account to my account. When the Federal Reserve is buying these treasuries, there's no account. When they write a check, that money is created into existence. So on Tuesday and Wednesday, $128 billion that didn't exist before now exist, right? So that's the way the balance sheet works. So why this is important is because if the system comes back up and basically the Federal Reserve has to keep doing these injections, the new money is going to be created constantly. And the way you could see it is, okay, over the next year and a half, we're going to have to print a couple of hundred more billion dollars, if not trillions, while at the same time, the production rate of Bitcoin will be cut in half. So even if we have equal level in value, what will that do to the price of Bitcoin in dollars, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I want, I, sometimes I get like leveled in these trick questions, but I want to say it's going to double and increase if, well, if, it's, if we're having, right. you know, then the scarcity is going up. So exactly, exactly. And the, you know, the simplest way to think about it is if there's 10 Bitcoin in existence and $20 and the price of Bitcoin is $2 per Bitcoin. And the only thing that changes is that we're not going to double the amount of dollars in existence. So now there's $40, but still only 10 Bitcoin. Well, it stands to reason that people will be willing to pay $4 for that Bitcoin, right? Now, of course, it's much more complicated. We'll see what the future holds. But this type of activity is at the heart of what the motivation behind Bitcoin was, right? 
Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't just inject a bunch of money into Bitcoin to keep, you know, I mean, you guess you can <laughs> I guess you can try with whales and all that, but like still it's not not something that it's completely on its own, you know. That's right. Yeah. And it is weird that you, when you say, you know, it's a free market, but it's not really a free market. That, exactly. It's not really a free market, but it is. The The Fed is intervening through a free market process. But we're happy they're intervening, to be I, honest. That's actually a great point, Adam, that I wanted to finish this segment with. It is a great point because when people read this, especially sometimes people in the crypto space with our ideology, they kind of look at the Federal Reserve as the bad guy. And sure, historically and in the larger context and with everything in consideration, in some ways. But the people, the individuals in the institution are really literally stuck between a rock and a hard place here because yeah. if there is not this intervention, you have systemic failure that that affects everybody. <laughs> well, I happen to think that a lot of uh, these situations where people just are like, this person's a bad guy, blah, blah. It's usually something like that, where it's like, there's really no good answer. Right. And I mean, that's kind of, I'm not trying to defend Trump, but I'm just like, as far as what a president looks like in my eyes, like, it's just like, hey, here's a shitty situation. Here's another shitty situation. Now you have to pick which one of the city situations is less shitty. And I feel like, I mean, it's very, you're always upsetting someone when you have to make these hard decisions. And this is why I hear Rogan talk about it a lot. It's absurd that it's only one person that really has to make like, yeah, he has a, he has cabinet and advisors, but like there, maybe there should be more governance (laughs) within the government. No, you're right, man, because it's reflective of, of a very big and complex system. I agree with you that the president in a lot of ways becomes this like singular point of ultimate decision making, but they have to balance so many interests. And a lot of times, you know, it's kind of like, you just said it, right? Every decision affects somebody negatively. And I think that sometimes people don't realize that in politics and society in general, um, a lot of the decisions we make are definitely pro one group and anti another group. One group benefits and the other one doesn't. It's not like you could just do something that benefits America. You could do something that benefits different parts of America. And for example, if we pass a a carbon tax, there will be a very real positive effect on environment, on revenue, but there will be a very clear negative effect on the revenues of for investors in, in the fossil fuel space, for fossil fuel companies, right? And the society at large has to decide if that is like if that's going to be worth the greater overall good, but that's that's a difficult thing to manage. And, and you're right, there's usually no right answers. There are difficult compromises. It's a lot easier to tweet about it and just say that this is what we need to do than actually <laughs> like delving into every single like seeing the the chain of events that would have to happen in order to get something done. I agree. I agree. All so, right, so yeah, yeah I know we know we stayed on this a while. So I, I one hand a ball back off. Uh, EOS troubles are brewing, Adam, and you did the dive on this. Can I just start off by saying that this title does not surprise me? God, I have uh, been just so skeptical of EOS, man. So uh, I see that I maybe I should have changed the headline a little bit. That was the title <laughs> of the article, but I will say that after reading, or at least like mostly reading the article, um, it seemed like it was... It was just like stirring the pot a little overblown. bit. Okay, okay, good. But that's, no, that's I, wouldn't say over, I wouldn't say it's overblown, 
but I would say that this is definitely like something like could be it could be going down it could be like the tip of the iceberg. All right. So a few weeks ago, one of its earliest supporters, EOS Tribe, uh, which is a small company that participated in the launch of the first EOS chain, it called it quits as an EOS block producer. And I guess the head of EOS Tribe, Eugene Luzgin, uh, made a post on Steemit and, and said, we at EOS Tribe have never participated in the game of vote trading and stayed true to our principles. And hence, while we leave EOS as block producer, we are also free to speak truth and give warnings to the rest. And I know that we really should be putting this in the shots fired section, but I mean, this was very relevant to this article and that is quite some shots fired. What do you think of that? No, that's a that's a big claim, and uh, and I want to see <laughs> what what are the warnings I want to hear. You know, this is sounds like definitely troubles brewing. <laughs> so uh, basically, they they were he just kind of went on and said that uh, he called it a brain drain, and I'd never really heard this uh, term before. And basically, when I googled it, it said basically when you have a bunch of smart, like let's say you recruit all the Indians to come over to San Francisco to work in tech or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like all the smart guys are going somewhere. So I guess essentially what they're saying is that they were able to get all, like most of the US block producers are in China. So it's becoming like kind of like just like a, a game, you know, with other whales. Interesting. Real quick, Adam, before you continue, one of the things in this quote, right? He said, that the EOS tribe has never participated in the game of vote trading, right? This was one of our big critiques from the very beginning about EOS, right? That they that they created their structure in this hierarchical kind of, you know, these are the people that vote and they have all this power and stuff. And it's like, it's not that hard to predict that what that's going to do is create political games and concentration of power that's going to be destructive to the system because it'll serve the interest of he who holds that power. So it's one of these kind of red flag things that we saw at the very beginning. And hearing this guy mention it, you know, why is he even mentioning vote trading right now? Well, because they're in a system that clearly relies on those votes and manipulation. And you know who it is. A true blockchain voting system needs to have more anonymity and decentralization than that. Yeah. And uh, what's uh, the... Next part, I actually referenced like in the notes, I was like, I know you guys before my time did EOS 101 and you were, you expressed issues on the governance and it being pretty centralized. So for those who don't know, there are 21 block producers at any time and they make governance decisions, establish consensus on the chain and earn substantial rewards. So what Luzgin was saying was that the most technically proficient block producers are receiving little to reward at all now, making it very unprofitable for them to, you know, continue being a block producer. And that is not good for the growth of EOS. If you're now putting people that are just big bag holders or something ahead of the ones that truly are working for, you know, like building the projects in EOS are just working within EOS. Also, this was one thing that was I didn't know, and it's kind of shocking uh, that they did this. On May 8, 2019, they burned $167 million worth of EOS. 
for the worker proposal system, which was a way to fund EOS DAP development. It didn't really explain why they did it, but it seems crazy that this was in, it was in an EOS savings account and they just got rid of it altogether. Doesn't make any sense why they would do this. You would want people like trying to build DAPs on EOS and getting rewarded for it. I don't really understand. That's just kind of an odd, you know, decision. Recently, EOS New York proposed an EOS user agreement, which was adopted by 15 of the 21 BPs, but nothing against vote buying was in the agreement. So they just neglected to, that was, this is exactly the thing that you and Luzgin have been talking about. And they just decided, you know, we're going to admit that. So, yeah, I mean, see, these are things that are like, this could be an issue. You know, these are telltale signs of an issue. But, you know, I can't, you're not saying like, oh, EOS is a sinking ship or anything because it's still early on in the project. And apparently block one could get, which is like, the I think block, I forget what block, I'm always like, do you know what block one's ties are with EOS? Do you remember? No, uh, not exactly. Not exactly. And I'll be honest, I'll come clear that the red flags or the kind of weaknesses that I feel that I spotted in the EO system made me lose interest in them so early on that I haven't kept up with their development and their partnerships and their just their general direction simply because I don't have faith in the product because of the fundamental structure, right? And look, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. I mean, whatever. We have the <laughs> we have the extra time so might as well. But this is one of the reasons why I come off as just shilling Cardano all the time or being so pro Cardano. But I just want to show a fundamental difference. When Cardano was trying to figure out how to, which they still are, so I'll give you that. They, it's not like they're finished. But as Cardano is trying to figure out how to decide who's going, how are votes going to be distributed, who's going to hold the power, right? They're creating systems where you can easily delegate your state to whoever you want and you're moving it quickly. It never gets attached anywhere. Fees have to be transparent. Uh, the stakeholders never hold the actual funds. Um, IOHK itself has to bid for the development uh, to keep developing on the project in the future. So there's like all these steps and they study game theory. They brought in people who study game theory to try to figure out all the we like all the little things that they could miss because it's not just about design. It's about unintended consequences. So you could do something with the best intention, but because you didn't have the time or you didn't put in the effort to break down the possible outcomes, you don't see the ways in which a node holder could cheat or manipulate or like you said, vote buying, right? So to me, the fact that IOHK re- recognizes this as a problem from the beginning and is investing resources in trying to solve the problem, whereas like EOS, in my opinion, is putting forward a tried and true political system, right? Like, hey, what if we give you know X amount of people a bunch of power and then you can elect them and then they'll represent you? <laughs> Look at every fucking democracy in the world right now. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You're not bringing anything new, right? It just doesn't work. It's just not exactly. And especially when it's directly tied with the incentive of money. It's so financially tied. Literally, like vote buying here goes hand in hand with the economics of the system. It's more directly linked than voting in a democracy to the dollar because here the unit is merged, right? So how could you not see 
I, I say the CEOs, right? Like whatever development they do, I'm not saying that they can't create projects. I'm not saying that they won't succeed as a project. I'm not saying that EOS is not going to be worth more money in the future. I'm just saying that I can't imagine a future where EOS isn't continuously plagued by this type of corruption, dysfunction, and manipulations of power because it wasn't designed to distribute that power. I think sometimes we need to zoom out and look at these coins and blockchains, cryptocurrencies, whatever you want to call platforms, as companies. And if you run a company and you do not think that they're making good decisions from a business standpoint, then that's probably not a good decision to, you know, like, like that's just like you, you, you shouldn't be having too much faith in them as a coin. Mm-hmm. And if there are things that just keep happening, red flags, whatever, you don't like the team, whatever it is, like it's still a business. This is still something that needs to be run well. And I think we kind of forget that sometimes that it's like, oh, no, like, you know, the coin is, you know, because it's like kind of like separated a little bit. You, yeah. you just, but these are just all businesses that just happen to be using a coin to, to kind of, uh, you know, utilize the business. But let me, okay. So let me push you a little bit here just to play devil's advocate, Adam. I would argue that EOS certainly is in this case, a business. It's essentially a big giant uh, financial network or institution that is controlled by a couple of decision heads that we can call the executives or the main, everybody's a shareholder, but these guys are the board members, right? So in a very real way, EOS is a traditional business on blockchain. But when you look at something like Ethereum, Bitcoin, or what Cardano is aspiring to develop, you're talking about a much more complicated decentralized network, which, yes, is trying to have cohesive goals, but many of the challenges that they encounter is because they are trying to be truly decentralized. So they are creating something new. So, yes, to me, EOS is more of a business on blockchain, whereas Bitcoin is a truly decentralized. And of course, we know about there's mining centralization and all these things, but it's a better game theory that kept it more decentralized. So it's not a traditional political system. It's a network. And I guess what I, for me to envision something truly taking over the world, it's going to have more of the feelings of a network like Ethereum than just a business like, uh, <laughs> like EOS here. Where, how are they going to take this global? You're going to go to Zimbabwe and Cuba and Russia and Iran and try to get all their citizens to adopt more and more of EOS going through the same fucking 21 people? No, it's not going to no. happen. So uh, Block One is actually the company that launched the code behind EOS. And by the way, I was, remember, it was a $4.1 billion ICO. And <laughs> it's, it's a lot of money that I feel like probably did not get put to good use um they're the largest token holder and they could apparently what the thing is is that they could have easily redefined the governance on the chain but they are yet to take action so that's the thing it's like you know nothing is they're yet to take action they Mm -hmm. could do it but if they don't do it there's going to be a lot of issues but if they do do it i mean you know it's just like yeah go ahead here's here's my final prediction and this is why i consider it a, a no return point I don't believe, this is an article of faith maybe, I don't believe that EOS will be capable of making that change. And here's why. Because the people that will have to make that change will essentially be 21 people with a lot of power deciding to have less power. 
and it'll be extremely difficult. That's why the United States Congress doesn't vote to give themselves salary cuts. They don't vote to make their work weeks longer. They've only worked shorter and shorter hours for more and more money because the people voting are voting on their own best interest, not the interest of the network. And I don't care what anybody says, they're not truly aligned because they hold a totally different position from everybody else in the network. So I don't believe that EOS will be capable of making the change in any kind of relevant foreseeable future that will allow them to compete with truly public blockchains. That's what Interesting. I, I, I think that's like pretty on point. EOS is definitely not one of my favorite coins. And yeah, there's just like, Kind of things that happen, they uh, keep happening. Uh, oh, one more thing that I think is another good point. There are two forks that have happened already within EOS. One is something called Werby, W-O-R-B-I-I. And it's created with certain consumer protections and more of a focus on the financial industry. Then there's another one called Telos, which is actually feel like they're doing what EOS did wrong. Telos has a token cap of 40k max, so you can only have 40k Telos. So you know, like you can't really be a whale. And then a number of innovations to ensure potential BPs actually serve. So they're actually they're trying to just correct kind of what EOS is doing wrong. And to be honest, I'm interested in Telos. Like they 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 got away from EOS. I don't know. Like it, it seems like an interesting uh, fork. Uh, smart for them to move away. And maybe those people were actually really the, you know, that's the thing with forks. When people leave, that's a good amount of technical like knowledge that is, is moving away usually. <laughs> yeah, there's people that are just like, oh, I'm a Telos fanboy or whatever, and I'm going to go with them. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people that were on US that were actually like legitimately good decided to move to Telos as well. I don't know. You know what? This is going to be unpopular, but I'm glad talented people are leaving EOS because <laughs> I want as many talented people working on true depths as possible. So maybe I mean, you guys have called it. We need to have a track record, but you called Substratum, uh, Cryptopia, a few others. <laughs> um, I'll, yeah. I'll admit, Brent and I have had this conversation where we recognize that we have very small knowledge. Our programming knowledge is lacking. Our true like understanding of all the technological intricacies are lacking, and we don't have a financial expertise. But we do apply a rigorous process of just common sense, basic kind of structural human nature kind of game theory. Like, where is this going? And when you see a ton of red flags, you, you got to let it go. Bye-bye. This is where the Warren Buffett quote comes in. You can pass up on every... You don't have to swing at every ball. It's not a baseball game. You don't get thrown up to the plate and say, here are the next three balls, three strikes, and you're out. You literally get to pass on 99% of things that exist and wait for good opportunities. So when a Bitcoin exists or when an Ethereum exists or when a Cardano exists, to me, investing in EOS is just... Forget about it. I wouldn't even consider it. Definitely true. All right. So uh, we're going to move on to crypto around the world. Yeah, I shouldn't sing ever. But yeah, uh, we do love Daft Punk. 
<laughs> you definitely do. I do as well. And now let's talk about a cryptocurrency that we can all truly believe in. You know, EOS is one thing, but I'm really excited about this upcoming project. North Korea is building their own Bitcoin atom. North Korea, ever heard of them? They're in Asia. Who? North, North, North Korea. They're in China. They're oh, Dennis Rodman's favorite. <laughs> that uh, is right. Yeah. Yep. Dennis Rodman's uh, holiday spot. All right. So here's the story. We've always talked about this. This is kind of the same token about these countries that are forced to dive into blockchain in order to circumvent U.S. sanctions. So in the case of North Korea, we are now getting the story that they are starting to develop their own cryptocurrency to avoid sanctions. The quote specifically was, we're still in the very early stages of the creation of a token, but we are in the phase of studying the goods that will give value to it. So right off the bat, that's interesting because it means that they're looking at something like the Petro, where a commodity that they possess would be able to back the cryptocurrency. Maybe they understand that the currency itself is not just going to have value just based on the economy. They're specifically not saying that they're trying to put their national currency on the blockchain. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that they're looking into developing a cryptocurrency that they can use to navigate international economy without having to deal with U.S. sanctions. So, huh. yeah, this is this is really interesting. And North Korea has been taking advantage of this in different ways. There was one specific example that I want to mention so that we can get an idea of what it is they're thinking about or how they're trying to do this, right? So again, the US says, okay, all these businesses, you can't do, you cannot do business with North Korea, right? So in 2018, last year, a guy named Jonathan Fung Ka Kung, which is a Singapore-based boat captain, he started a company that takes a boat and sells shares of it. So, right, instead of just saying, okay, so this is my boat, you can have this digital token, which gives you a share of the boat, and that way you can share in the revenues of the boat. All right, tokenizing boats doesn't sound that interesting. Except for this, if North Korea owned that boat, and it was, whatever, trading, carrying natural resources, whatever, then the fact that it's a North Korean vessel immediately means that all these countries and all these ports and all these banks would have to say, oh, I can't do business with you. Otherwise, the United States might sanction me, might fine me for doing business with a North Korean entity. But now that this boat is owned by a Singapore captain, it becomes very almost impossible to realize that, oh, actually, 85% of the tokenization of this boat is in North Korea, right? So it's technically oh. a North Korean ship essentially in stocks, but you're able to obfuscate who owns it. It's the same thing that we do in America with corporate structures. When people don't want to know who owns the actual company, you just set up all these other offshore companies and holding companies and things. So you hide yourself between the different layers of ownership. So that's really what North Korea is talking about doing here, right? Creating cryptocurrencies and, and utilizing blockchain in such a way that it allows them to engage in business activity without having to use the dollar or SWIFT or traditional banks. Wow. That's uh, quite clever, to be honest. It is. And it transitions us to the next story. These are really two in one. But another part of the world, similar situation is now we're going to Cuba, which we have also talked about how they are ramping up their blockchain 
utilization. Uh, but this story was cool. This, it was in Vice, and it talked about how since the rollout of mobile internet in Cuba about a year ago, more people are having access to crypto, and it's actually stimulating economic activity in interesting ways. They talk about a specific guy, uh, Jason Sanchez, is a cell phone shop owner in Cuba. So one of the problems that they have is you could they try to repair cell phones, but if a part breaks and they don't have it, they can't access it because he can't go online and buy a cell phone part because he lives in Cuba. He just can't go on Amazon and say, let me buy this screen, let me buy this SIM card, let me buy this antenna, because as soon as they recognize him that he's logged in from Cuba, just like what happened to Brent with Coinbase, as we already know, just, <laughs> just logging in in Cuba immediately shuts you out. And just to show you how how bad this is, how pervasive it is. It actually turns out last year for Hurricane, uh, let me see, which one was it? Uh, there was a big tornado in Havana recently, and there's all these crowdfunding. Irma? Uh, it might have been Irma. It might have been Irma. But basically, all these crowdsourcing sites that pop up, you know, how, oh, let's help Puerto Rico and a bunch of people put money together and a Kickstarter or whatever, something like that to go help. They got shut down. Some of the ones that were trying to help Cuba simply because. It mentioned Cuba, right? Yeah, that Bitcoin is kind of either they need to. Why are the sanctions so? Like, are these these are not sanctions anymore, right? This is just Cuba. No, these are political. Or, no, these are political sanctions. This is the United States, which we can really uh, to understand that we have to conceive of the United States as the source of power of the global monetary system today. And they are they can basically say, "All right, here are the sanctions on Cuba. Not only are we as United States not going to trade with Cuba, but we're saying anybody that transacts with Cuba." is considered part of the sanctions. So then businesses like Coinbase or like a bank or like, you know, let's say PayPal, who will just handle transaction payments, none of them can touch it because then they can get a huge fine from the United States government or they could get locked out of the dollar, which would be disastrous, wow. right? It, it's business suicide. That's the power of sanctions. So when you hear about Iran or Russia or Cuba or North Korea suffering from US sanctions, it's really talking about the United States finding ways to cut them off from the economic activity of the world and why you hear so much about these countries kind of like trying to find alternative sources, right? Like China with Iran, with Russia, with Cuba. Well, what do these countries have in common? It's certainly not culture and religion. <laughs> it's yeah. being blocked out by U.S. sanctions. That's true. It's uh, definitely a good tie-in. For yeah, crypto yeah. around the world. <laughs> All right, Adam. So that tells us a little bit about what's going on in the world. So, you know, if you want to increase your Bitcoin activity, just move to North Korea or Cuba. Uh, but tell me about the latest scam. No, 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 no. That's a scam. So this is actually an old scam. But it's just uh, the SEC is going after all the the ICOs from the 2017 ICO craze. This one is called ICO box and its founder is Nikolai Ed Evdokimov. And what's funny is I actually thought that this, maybe this guy was like the same guy from the Paragon coin who also uh, had to deal with an SEO case. Turns out Paragon actually settled recently, but they were using ICO box platform for investors, I guess. So maybe there's a you know a Russian connection. So what they did was it was fourteen million dollars in 
illegal securities. They sold it to more than 2,000 individuals, and they expose investors to investments, which are now basically worthless without providing investors pertinent info to make informed decisions. And if you do that and you just say, hey, invest here, and it ends up being your friend's company, Paragon Coin, uh, you know, and then Paragon Coin has the biggest ICO at the time or whatever, and then completely tanks a few months later, it's not going to look well for you. It's not going to look good. So that's, I really don't, I guess ICO box was like, hey, come here and I'll get you like into these different ICOs and stuff. And all those ICOs ended up being pretty worthless. And uh, one thing of note is the ICO, the website ICO rating, which I think I might've gone to maybe back in the day. It's a cryptocurrency rating site was fined 269K last year for failure to disclose payments received from issuers of digital assets. Basically, they got in trouble for shilling, but not letting people know that these were shilled projects. Mm -hmm. So their SEC's going after, like they're, they're, they're backtracking. They're looking at all these companies, all these people during that time period that were shilling or just making bad investments you know, that were not registered and they're getting those people. Yep. And this is so revelatory, man. I mean, ICO rating. I, I remember I found them at one point and, you know, just browse through the website or whatever, but really think about what that's saying. They're getting fined because ICOs were giving them money to get good ratings. Let's just be real. When they're getting money and they didn't quote unquote disclose the payment, it just means that somebody paid them a bunch of money to give them a good review. Right. And yep. It sounds kind of insane and terrible and all, you know, the fake advertisement and all that stuff. And it is. But just to remind people, one of the reasons we had a big issue in 2008 is because the credit rating agencies, the ones that are supposed to look at investments and say, hey, this is truly AAA, this is super safe, or this is not safe, we're giving junk mortgage, subprime mortgage packages. Triple A ratings and selling them to the pensions of teachers and firemen and municipal workers and all this kind of stuff and giving them triple A ratings. And then these people would believe in them because they didn't want the major financial institutions to no longer go to them for ratings. So this exact thing that we're seeing, this microcosm of the cryptocurrency space with ICOs giving them money happened at the largest scale, financial scale possible in our entire economic system, which is why you as an individual need to navigate the waters of this world with a super skeptical mind, because even at the higher levels, you know, human instinct and human intentions and human, uh, I should say, really incentives are ruling it, right? So the, this is basic game theory at work. Everybody's following their own incentives. Yeah. I mean, I, I think those, the, those are very good points. And uh, this is kind of why the Crypto Basic podcast was started to begin with was to avoid things like this and yeah. we're here to help and, <laughs> yeah the, the name should uh, we'll have been try our, this, best. our actual name should have been the scam alert podcast but uh we felt <laughs> crypto basic was a little more catchy <laughs> yeah i like it um so yeah i guess that kind of wraps up that's a scam doesn't seem like, i mean i guess shots fired was kind of covered with eos uh yeah i think that and, does uh yeah. kind of wrap up our content for this week we hope uh, brink gets better um and of course an important reminder to the audience adam is that we're not financial advisors so everything you heard here was our own opinion and remember that all investments have inherent risks 
Yes, it's very true. But also uh, remember to subscribe to our Patreon or check out our YouTube or hit us up on iTunes. Leave a good rating. You know, just uh, say that you that I'm the best out of all. No, don't do that. These guys are great. Kareem, so much information. Brent, hilarious. But yeah, sniffly. Uh, yeah, he's sniffly. Um, but yeah, we are not financial advisors. And guess that's it for this week. Awesome. Bye bye. See ya.